This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello everyone and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Nutcrackers, Little Wooden Boys and Bears of Very Little Brain, the sentient toy trope in speculative fiction. Well, we are getting closer to that uh, festive time of year. Um, <laughs> and uh, as always, Jules and I um, observe the seasons in our own ways. But uh, as we were getting in, I thought we should start doing some more kind of, you know, seasonally, seasonably appropriate, seasonally appropriate um, sort of episodes. And I thought, what what comes to mind when you think of sort of this season? And of course, I then messaged Jules saying, Jules, let's talk about sentient toys, child- like toys coming to life. And I <laughs> I heard this oh, from Jules. Yeah, basically, she got the thousand yard stare. because It was like, I immediately went to China dolls. Yeah. And my sister's China doll collection. <laughs> and then every every terrifying China doll type film or story I'd ever heard. Um, yeah. But no, obviously, Madeline was coming from Santa's workshop and I went to, oh my God, Bride of Chucky. Yeah, <laughs> it was, because I was like, you know, thinking of all, you know, all those stories where, you know, like the, the toys come to life and, you know, like Winnie the Pooh, sort of, you know, all that nice, cute stuff. And, and Jules immediately went, kill a doll. Um, <laughs> I can't help how my brain works. Yeah. Um, I apologise. Um, so... Obviously, it's a really good trope to explore because it does hinge on a very specific part of the childhood experience. Um, And there are literally hundreds of examples of it. And it obviously also interconnects and explores a wide spectrum of issues from um, more benevolent anthropomorphism to the very sinister killer doll horror angle. (laughs) Yes. um, And obviously, you know, since we're a week away from Chris, well... This episode will be coming out a week away from Christmas, so that's why we're intending to focus more on the light side. But I am going to have a small segment to talk about some of the more, I think, the whimsical, slightly darker elements, because um, the way that trope plays into certain themes that are to do with childhood and growing up and isolation and things is very interesting. I'm going to leave the real horror aside because I don't want to deal with horror dolls for a start, not this close to Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I think there's space to look at some of the, you know, maybe the slightly more wistful, slightly almost spooky elements yeah. of it that, that sort of make you stop and think as well. Yeah, and to be honest, that's also sort of still seasonal, seasonally appropriate because uh, Christmas is also a good time for ghost stories and horror stories. So, yeah. With that in mind, let's dive into it. So we'll start off with why is this trope so popular? Um, And really, we've kind of got to ask ourselves, why is it such a long running trope? Uh, Think about it. Tropes go in and out of fashion, obviously. They adapt and they shapeshift depending on the times that they appear in and the sort of the general zeitgeist. Um, The sentient toy trope itself has actually changed very little despite the ways it has been used um, sort of changing a great deal. So so it's actually already quite interesting in that respect. Yeah, definitely. I mean, okay, in case anybody 
is unaware of this trope. Basically, the sentient toy trope is sort of predicated on this idea that you make something, a teddy bear, a, a doll, um, a bunch of fluffy animals, or what have you, or even things like, um, it, it's branched out into things like toy cars and stuff, mm-hmm. and then that thing has a sense of personhood, often a sense of agenda, um, a, a purpose, if you like, even if that purpose is to make children happy. Um, and it, it's, it kind of plays off the whole the things we love start to love us back type thing, which we'll get into. Yeah. Um, so that's what we mean by sentient toys at its most base level. And it's a really, really old trope. It really, really is. Um, in fact, it, it's one of those tropes that we can't actually sort of really find a specific start date. Um, now, most of us can think of an example, uh, and it would be easy to blame the Victorians, certainly for the more saccharine offerings as they started venerating childhood <laughs> as a concept and childhood innocence as idyllic. And it definitely plays into that mindset and subverts it as well. Yeah, um, but I mean, I was, I mean, I did a wee Google, and as I said, there's like hundreds of examples. Um, and I was, I was trying to look for a really, really early example, and I remembered the episode we did on Cinderella, mm-hmm. and I went back and just checked one of the early versions of Cinderella, which is about 800 years old, mm-hmm. maybe a bit older, and it has an instance of the living toy trope, um, and basically without going into the whole Cinderella thing, because you can check out that episode, um, the the young Cinder girl is so wretched that she's kind of confessing everything to a small doll which is her only possession every night so she's talking about how miserable her stepmother is making her um to the point where she's actually telling the doll that she's intending to kill herself at which point the doll wakes up and begs her not to do it and this happens several points during the story um and the doll is even instrumental in her being recognized and rescued instead of it being like a a a slipper situation in that instance um the man who owns the house and everything overhears uh, the cinder girl talking to the doll and then overhears the doll talking back and thinks well this girl's really special she's got a doll talking to her <laughs> burn her burn her <laughs> at which point he confronts her and the, the the truth comes out and it okay that's not a cutesy story that's not winnie the pooh is it but no. it's all it is very much a living sentient toy trope it, it absolutely is. Um, and what's really interesting is that, you know, that version of the story is, you know, at least 800 years old, pr- you know, probably actually older than that. And yet we see that story um, and that kind of idea with the doll being translated into movies and films and stuff like that, which are much more recent, like the book and then the subsequent film, um, The Little Princess. I don't know if you've seen or read it, Jules. I, I have read both. Are we talking the 1990s version of The yes. Little Princess? Yeah. 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 Um, there, there is a doll that features in that, and it's the fact that obviously her father's gone off to war, and he basically tells her that if she gives the doll like a hug or something like that, the doll will rush off and will, will actually deliver it to him. And so the doll yeah. isn't actually living, but the concept of the doll, and obviously The Little Princess, it is pretty much a Cinderella retelling in a lot of respects. Um, and you again you have that doll where she's confessing her feelings to the doll she's using the doll as a mode of 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 kind of um yeah sort of surrogate yeah as a surrogate and i think that's probably also one of the reasons why 
particularly when it comes to sort of toys and it comes to things like teddy bears, dolls and stuff like that, they are anthropomorphized um, because they are actually the sort of confession booth is the wrong word but they are you know they are the ones who see children usually at their most vulnerable they're the ones who children will impart their secrets to you know they're the ones who offer comfort in that moment and so it's no surprise that you know they they develop these kinds of the, this rich sort of mythology around them of them being protectors of them being um you know kind wonderful beings and magical beings as well because in childhood this is a concept which is just ingrained otherwise we wouldn't want toys we wouldn't want these kinds of things if we didn't actually ascribe sort of personalities to them in some respect yeah absolutely um which i think sort of leads on to an interesting point as in where do we draw the line when it comes to anthropomorphic anthropomorphic toys dolls puppets puppets even, um, and carved images. Because going back even further into the mist of time, many pagan practices centred around creating an effigy, which was then believed to be imbued with sentience. Mm. So if you look at John Barleycorn from uh, the Lunasa, uh, uh, the, you know, the Petty Harvest Festival, yeah, that's an example. Uh, the Guy Fawkes effigy, that is a very much a UK thing, but that comes from the old... Um, pagan bonefire rituals so yes it's quite sinister but again you're creating an effigy and you're imbuing it with a very specific purpose and there are lots and lots of other examples as well I mean our corn dollies for example which don't really look like dolls but again are kind of imbued with this sense of purpose so it, it was it wasn't originally like just a childhood thing it was originally kind of like an adult thing we'll make this smaller version of us yeah yeah, and sometimes for all the sinister reasons. <laughs> sometimes for rather sinister reasons, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and I think that is also another reason why we can actually get so much mileage out of it. Why it doesn't feel as strange to have kind of the more sinister side of toys coming to life and then the, the comforting side. Um, because that's that's the really odd thing, is that nowadays, for example, if you hear nursery rhymes, because they've become now so associated with horror films and stuff like that, it's kind of switched over where now you hear a nursery rhyme and you're like, inherently it feels creepy. But there is something about the fact you could say, you know, sort of a toy with sentience, you know, a, a living toy, and you can really swing between that's creepy and that's actually really comforting very quickly um, yeah it could go either way couldn't it it really can and and that's actually kind of remarkable if you think about it um that it has that that stretch whereby we've not kind of settled on one or the other during at any one time um both paths have always been open so yeah definitely Okay, so let's move forward in time a little bit. Um, obviously, the Victorians created some very notable examples of this, as did the Edwardians. Um, you know, Enid Blyton has a veritable treasure trove of children's short stories which feature sentient toys, including, but not, limit to, not limited to, Noddy. Uh, <laughs> just, I wonder how many people listening will know who Noddy is. 
I don't know because they keep rebooting it, don't they? They so do. That there is Noddy programs on still now. Yeah. It's one of those never entirely gone out of style. You just hear the <laughs> Noddy. <laughs> just in my head. The little man with the red and yellow car. <laughs> And then, of course, children's TV happened. Um, and, you know, Muffin the Mule, Bagpuss, well, Bagpuss, uh, <laughs> Raggy Dolls, uh, The Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy, Rose. Sinister program. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that one was always sinister. <laughs> uh, Rosie and Jim, Super Ted. Um, and of course, you know, TV also brought to life things like Winnie the Pooh, gave them new lease, gave Winnie and, and his, you know, friends new leases of life, etc. Yeah, definitely. So, so what is it about the trove? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think it swings on, on two specific hinges. Mm. This is kind of my, my hot take, so obviously okay. correct me if you think I'm wrong. Um, the first is that toys are both a learning tool and an aid to the imagination, mm. which are both things that young humans, in fact, young animals, as someone who has spent the last nine months, well, last eight months with um, two very small young cats and watching them with toys and what they decide to do. And I mean, they're not presumably ascribing anthropomorphic qualities to their their little furry mice and things, or at least I don't think they are. You never know. But you can, you can absolutely see the sort of mammalian and animalian, in fact, desire for a young animal to have something to play with. Mm. Um, it's absolutely adorable. They pick them up in their mouths and take them off somewhere dark and then we find them weeks and weeks later. <laughs> sort of abandoned them. True cat, true cat style. Um, yeah, so that's, that's all something that you need to develop properly. You need toys, you need stimulation. Um, and once our basic needs are met, we require that mental stimulation in the forms of stories and play, which is obviously, you know, what, what this first hinge is. So there you go. You've got toys that have a degree of importance that, I mean, you can't eat them or you probably shouldn't. <laughs> they don't provide you with shelter um, and they're not, you know, they may provide a degree of comfort, but it's not the same as literally having a parent or a caregiver or somebody there. So really, if you looked at them very objectively, a toy is actually kind of a useless thing, except it's not. Mm. It's actually an essential thing at the same time. You may not need hundreds of them, but you do need a few. Yeah, and and it's um, also what's remarkable is that... Also what's remarkable is that we will find and make toys. It's one of those things where, you know, people say, look, don't bother buying lots and lots of Christmas presents for your, for your young children, because they'll probably like the boxes more. Um, and it, it is about that kind of that stimulation. And obviously there's lots of different types of stimulation. Um, we talk about, you know, Jules is right in terms of the comfort. It, a toy cannot sort of replace uh, the human need for, you know, some kind of parental figure, um, some kind of, you know, comforting familial figure. But, you know, soft toys, that is, you know, that's a sensation. The sensoriness of this is pleasant to touch it's comforting to rub against my face. There is a sensation there which is associated with being calming, being comfortable, being cared for. Um, and of course, you know, the other side of it is this is actually engaging me because it has bright colours, it has an interesting shape, it moves or it makes some kind of sound which is interesting. Or, and obviously as you get, as kids get older, it actually provides me with a platform 
to create something new and to create stories yeah absolutely so they are and, and we will and people will create them it's why kids love like empty boxes <laughs> cats also love empty boxes for probably <laughs> different reasons but you know kids kids love boxes because there's so much you can do with that there's just so much <laughs> yeah absolutely and it you know it's one, it's one of those universal things um one year i had a summer reading challenge activity i did um i just moved houses and i had I've moved houses i just moved house and i had some huge boxes as and you could get me in there comfortably mm. um i feel like madeline might be biting back something i am like, I'm to really say, yeah, holding okay. it back <laughs> okay you could have got me and madeline together in one of these boxes they were really big okay all right that's a different thing entirely. <laughs> <That's a> bit... <laughs> i'm not pocket size um <laughs> and and <laughs> we ended up using the boxes to make this big cardboard maze and it was only supposed to stay up for one day but the kids loved it so much it stayed up for the rest of the summer <laughs> and they just had this i mean i it was taking up the space in the middle of the children's area but it didn't matter because they just took their books into this maze and once they got to the center they all settled down on the beanbags to read it's kind of cute actually. i assume this is in the library in the library, yeah. I didn't randomly make a maze somewhere. <laughs> I was like, your children are in there. Off you go. <laughs> for a Pied Piper. <laughs> so um, anyway, we, we have that first sort of aid to imagination, mm. um, need for mental stimulation hinge, obviously. Yeah. Um, the second hinge, in my opinion, is more of a primate thing than a young animal thing. And that is, we form a tight social bond within our circles because we are social animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and we require something to love so that that that's kind of what Madeline was touching on with the soft toys thing it, it was you know if you if you're not getting that from a parent or a sibling or a caregiver or a grandparent or someone then you will find other objects of affection generally yeah. this I mean this is not an unusual thing for children um, and that you know that object of affection whether you you have a wide social circle that you're tightly bonded to or not that object i mean every kid has its her his or her or their favorite teddy bear don't they Mm. that for a short time that's a member of the family that's real you know they actually make it real by dint of genuinely believing it but is is real yeah Um, i don't mean literally but i mean it's real by perception to that particular child so i don't think it's a great leap from believing the thing we love has started to love us back um, to feeling a sentience in what is essentially an object and believing that the doll or teddy bear could move if it chose to. Yeah. I think it's quite a small step, to be honest. It is, it is. Um, particularly, again, if, you know, you're combining all of these things. Um, you know, if yeah. if you begin to ascribe, let's just say a teddy bear, if you begin to ascribe a teddy bear with characteristics, which people do, um, it's no great leap to then you know start to imagine it being alive it's kind of a logical step yeah absolutely so then obviously for writers for filmmakers and illustrators and stuff it's a very rich vein to mine i mean and and it's not going dry anytime soon Well, yeah, it hasn't for, well, when I say 800 years, but I reckon there's probably examples that go back thousands of years, probably since we were living in caves. So, yeah. Stories which feature toys as the main characters do very well because children feel that they are real and yet still part of their own imaginative inner lives. Um, 
And I think the fact of the matter is, is that obviously we talk about writers and filmmakers and stuff like that, but I think the reason that it is just continues and will continue is because pretty much every child will have that moment where to some degree they believe that their toys are alive. And when I say to some degree, I don't mean that all of us will literally believe, right, our toys are up and dancing about the moment we're out of the room. Though I think a fair amount of children will at some point believe that. Um, But that there is something whereby, you know, it, it hurts you to see a toy kind of get, you know, destroyed or for a toy to be lost or something like that. Um, and you can only, you know, you can only extend empathy to something which you've kind of already ascribed as as kind of having feelings of some kind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you you forget, I think, as an adult, how essential that is, because um, as an example, my sister brought my uh, then at that point two year old niece over to visit me when I was uh, house sitting with my parents, mm. and her favorite her favorite teddy bear at the moment is this elephant from Bing the Bunny called I think the elephant's called Shula, but I could be wrong. <laughs> and this elephant goes everywhere with her. It went with me to went with her to my parents' house. And then it did not go home with her. Oh, no. I got a slightly panicked phone call from my brother-in-law saying, could you have a look for the elephant? So I did. And I'm like, yeah, it's here. It was down by the sofa cushion. And he's like, okay, I'm going to pop over in half an hour and get it. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, no, she won't go to bed without it. And it it, it is that serious. Yeah. But, like, even as adults, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that all of us have, have at least one sort of childhood toy or something like that. Which, you know, like, if you're packing or something like that, you sort of, you pack it in gently. Yes. <laughs> you like, you don't just shove it in or throw it around. You, you like, treat it with care. Like, even yeah. as an adult, you cannot separate those feelings. And I think that because that is such a universal experience for so many people, and continues to be, and I think will always be, this vein will never run dry. No, I completely agree. I think it kind of also taps into the whole, you know, um, anthropomorphizing is kind of a safe way to explore things that are quite grown up and scary for children. So mm-hmm. we've talked about this with uh, books for children that are populated with animal characters, mm-hmm. um, as in very specifically anthropomorphic animal characters, because it makes it easier to deal with things like um, death and loss, etc., and some of the other things. Um, because you're one step removed from from humans yeah and i think you get similar things with sort of like a story where it's it's the toys that come to life so you've got the magic but you've also got the one step remove yeah absolutely and i mean i know it's not quite the same thing but think about for example uh the muppets christmas carol right yeah it's a scary that's a scary story um and one of the reasons i love that version of christmas carol is that they manage to capture that childlike innocence and make it all palatable without actually removing any of the impact. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they and you know, these are little puppets. They are toys though. They look like toys. They um, do. If you're if you're looking at a lot of them and not thinking of, you know, your toy chest or whatever, then Yeah, exactly. Um and that you know, there are lots of other sort of examples of it. Another great example is obviously Sesame Street. Um, where they deal with all sorts of things. And again, it's palatable and easy to understand because they use toys. 
Um, and toys are also often used in, in therapy and things like that as a way for children to express things. So they're powerful tools for any kind of storytelling and self-expression. Um, and, you know, from an artistic point of view, using toys in that way as part of a story allows us to explore our own childish selves, as well as look at themes such as perceptions of magic, the child-adult divide, and what makes us human. Um, also, you know, parent-child relationships, loneliness, belonging, all of those things. So it doesn't have to be big, big sort of themes of death and stuff like that. It can, yeah. it can be, you know, what is it to be, you know, what is it to be a child? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to be honest, that's a lot of those themes are things that I think the Toy Story movies did really well, which we'll get into in a minute, but mm. very specifically Pixar with Toy Story, I think, tapped into a lot of stuff that when you look at it, it's kind of like, this is really adult subject material. Yeah. But they presented it in a way that's accessible and funny. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we're going to look at some examples now. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I'll take the first one if you like. Yeah, because you've decided that we're going to refer to it by its German name, and I feel like you've done that to me specifically to hurt me. No, <laughs> sorry, my my dyslexic brain is like cannot read German. That's not a thing that's going to be able to happen. So yeah, go for it. Uh, okay, this obviously we we talked about the fact that you know an, an early version of Cinderella had one of the earliest versions or episodes of this trope hmm. um, we're not going to go into that we're going to start with the victorian era when it's a little bit easier to track a lot of these things and we have actually got publication dates just yeah. just to make it easier but if you want earlier versions they are out there i promise you you can find them yeah <laughs> okay so the first one de nusenacker und das Mosconic, um which is the nutcracker and the mouse king by eta hoffman which is also uh, has been a popular ballet for a long time Hmm. Uh, called Casanozette. I think it's the French school as well, but I believe there's a Russian ballet, uh, Russian school of ballet version of the Nutcracker too. Hmm. Um, obviously, Tchaikovsky did the music for that. Anyway, this was published in 1816. Cards on the table. This is a really, really weird story. <laughs> as in, super, super weird. You read it as an adult and it won't make any sense to you. In fact, you'll probably be quite horrified. It follows Clara who, um, it, you know, it was actually written for a real Clara by her, her godfather. And it, <laughs> Clara on Christmas morning um, is delighted to unwrap her Christmas present. They're all seated around the tree. She's the youngest child. I think she's about seven in the story. And she receives a carved wooden nutcracker who's actually a bit ugly and strange looking. But she's delighted. She feels sorry for him. And she also believes, despite the fact that her brothers and sisters are mocking her for doting on this nutcracker, um, and obviously it doesn't just look like a nutcracker as in a metal nutcracker. He actually he looks like a soldier, but it yeah. is actually a nutcracker if you've seen the wooden ones. Um, despite the fact, despite their teasing, she is delighted to receive this, and doesn't really want to leave him when she's made to go to bed that night, um, and she's kind of convinced he's real. Uh, I'm I'm going to paraphrase the story because it it's quite a long story and again it's really it's really weird. weird. <laughs> um, but she comes downstairs and the Nutcracker has come to life and he begs for her assistance because he's actually a prince in disguise. It transpires through the story, but his kingdom has been taken over by the evil Mouse King, 
And what happens then is kind of like a portal fantasy thing where Clara's whisked into fairyland slash toyland slash sugar plum fairyland where mm-hmm. everything is, you know, there's, there's a point where everything around them is made of sugar as well. So um, <laughs> it, it's from a certain perspective, it's kind of like you can see that in your mind. It, it conjures up a very specific childhood type image where you know in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they go into that first room and there's a chocolate waterfall and everything in the room is edible yeah that sort of thing which taps into a very specific part of childhood but Clara's kind of like helping him get his kingdom back and everything and then um it, it the story goes off kind of how you'd expect with some very bizarre adventures along the way which I'm not going to get into <laughs> just just go and read the story if you want to and there's a, there's a sort of creepy there's a creepy, slightly too fond vibe coming from the, the the character in the story who actually made the Nutcracker and gave it to Clara. As in, yeah, he's a godfather, he cares about you, but there's something very creepy about that relationship as well. Or that's how it reads to a modern audience. And then he's like, well, they get to the end of the story and the Nutcracker asks for Clara's hand in marriage, but she's much too young, so she waits until she's eight years old to accept him. <laughs> what? Which... You know what? This is a childhood fairy tale thing, and you, yeah. when you're seven and you're seeing yourself as the hero of the story, and you don't really necessarily understand everything that marriage might involve. Yeah. Um, to be honest, that, that that is a typical kind of child thing. Yes. That that's a sort of very cute. But um, that's a very sort of cutesy Victorian. Obviously, it wouldn't have been Victorian because he was in Germany, but a very cutesy um, Victorian type sort of like, oh, we're having children eight the adults and they don't know what they're doing because they're so innocent type way of approaching things. Yeah. To us now, that's like really mega disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> However, it is a really good example of the trope, the idea that Clara, who loves this nutcracker and has imbued it with a sense of importance and a conviction that it's actually real mm. and is kind of rewarded for her belief um because you know it turns out she's right she goes on this fabulous adventure that many children would say that they would love even though i think in reality it would be horrendous <laughs> really terrifying um and then gets to marry the prince at the end which is what we're told we, we should want mm-hmm. as, as um, young girls so um it's it is a prime example of the trope and it's one of the earliest sort of recorded well documented yeah <laughs> Publication date, etc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can actually uh, literally mark the date. Um, and obviously it's been adapted and is still, you know, performed and, and well known to this day. It obviously is, is now best known as, as a ballet, but, you know. Oh, there's been all sorts of cartoons. There's been a Disney cartoon. There's been a Mickey Mouse version of the Disney cartoon. There's been... A Barbie Nutcracker. Which yeah, I was going to say it's the Barbie Nutcracker one. <laughs> weirdly, the Barbie Nutcracker. I'm not a massive fan of Barbie. I never have been because I don't like dolls. Mm. I've never really liked dolls. But that film was like, okay, I watched it then with uh, some children I was babysitting, I think. And it was kind of like, this isn't a terrible film. And it's not as creepy because Barbie is clearly an adult. Yeah. it must be said actually um barbie films they actually do do the classics pretty well yes (laughs) so that little aside that little aside okay um (laughs) i mean barbie is a whole other (laughs) 
<laughs> the whole other thing. Yeah, um, that's another kettle of fish. We'll, we'll get to that another day. <laughs> yeah. uh, of course, we then go to Pinocchio. Now, just as uh, Jules dislikes dolls, um, <laughs> Madeleine dislikes puppets. Um, and I'm, I'm like okay with the Muppets, but those are Muppets, not puppets. It's a slightly different thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if they're soft it's kind of okay <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I know this is one of the things we disagree on with Labyrinth isn't it because you're like you kind of like the story but don't like the puppetry <laughs> I tell you what I, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that Labyrinth is the reason that I'm afraid of puppets and it's literally just because of the, the, the fire the fire dance the fire yeah. dance yeah Alan doesn't like those either no. you're not alone they're horrifying and I although he, he's kind of like yeah I'll take your head off and then I'll stamp it into the ground that's his reaction to them yeah <laughs> yeah they are horrific anyway, anyway sorry Carol. so uh, Pinocchio uh, Carlo uh, Collodi um, so this is about sort of 1871 to 1873 around the time um, a lot of people are obviously very familiar with this uh, fairy tale, in fact there has just been a recent, in fact there's been two recent movie adaptations of it um, one less uh, <laughs> one which has been largely mocked and another which is is it, is it Del Toro, who did it? Who, who? I believe so. I, I, I'm quite interested in seeing the Guillermo del Toro one because um, he will, he doesn't take out the whimsy and the sinister aspects, and I think the stories tend to hang together better when he does it. Yeah, and what's very interesting here um, with his version is that um, this is a Pinocchio which is literally about exploring what about exploring childhood about actually being a child um you know in the especially in the original in the original you know poor jiminy cricket gets killed <laughs> oh my god I actually um, it was fairly recently i re i actually read the original book mm. um, which was i think serialized and then bound into one volume and then translated from the italian into it has to be said that when the italians write fairy tales they are generally quite horrific Mm. Um, anyway, it got prettied up by Disney and everything, and you think that Disney is as creepy as it gets, and then you actually read the book and you realise what a little shit Pinocchio is. Really, seriously, just a bad guy. <laughs> he's, aw he's awful to his adopted father, the you know the wood craftsman Geppetto. He's, um, I think he. With the the fox and the cat who are trying to trick him, I think he comes back and he, he you know kicks the crutch out from the cat and mm. does various other things. Um, yeah, he's just every point that he can be violent, rude, and dissolute, he does it. He, he doesn't need people to lead him into temptation. And as you say, poor Jiminy Cricket gets killed by Pinocchio. I'd like to point out. Yeah, um, and. There's, you know, it's actually weirdly enough the fact that so often we have this whole sort of, ah, childhood innocence and stuff like that. But forgetting, of course, that young children are little psychopaths. Um, and I'm not saying that to be rude. I'm, I'm saying that they haven't developed a lot of the skills of empathy and stuff like that. Um, usually at a certain age they do. Um and some of it, you know, some children develop it faster than others. But Pinocchio is very much that underdeveloped child. 
he doesn't really have a concept of death. He doesn't really have a concept of right and wrong, not properly. Um, and so, yeah, he does. He just lets his temper fly. He he kills Jeremy Jeremy Cricket. He he he's just a right asshole to, to everybody around him because he's actually weirdly enough more like a child than I think a lot of other depictions. Of, yeah. of kind of of children in in and a in very specific the child time. a very specific child between the two and six age range or the two and four age range where yeah. they're still um developing this sense of themselves as being something that is other than the center of the universe so you know for the first few years of a child's life everything has to orbit around them because they cannot live on their own yeah. but with pinocchio it was kind of like he was given agency in a body that would work like a much older child's and yet he had the development of like a two-year-old. Yeah, which is tough. Which is not good. No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that obviously didn't go particularly well. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I've always found it interesting because, uh, yes, I, I think a lot of people are more familiar with the Disney version, um, but it is actually a story which explores childhood, uses toys to explore childhood in a way that is much more accurate to what childhood looks like and the difficulties of raising children um, and, the, and the difficulties actually that children face as they sort of find themselves than, you know, pretty much anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, the next one is one of my favourites from my own childhood. <laughs> okay. Um, that's Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne um, in 1926. And A.A. A. Milne wrote these stories originally for his young son. Mm -hmm. And they were based on his young son's toys. And you can actually see the toys in the museum if you, want, you care to go and see them. Um, and they were immensely popular. They, they sort of played into coming off the back of the Victorian veneration of childhood and childhood innocence and the idyllic of, of that sort of state of being yeah. into the Edwardian where they just had the, the First World War. Yeah. So everything was still a bit raw and any child born was kind of like a little miracle, um, particularly if you had enough money so you weren't worrying about feeding them. Um, so that all of this goes into this incredibly complicated mixture about how people felt about children at that specific time. And then he kind of tapped into that. It has to be said, A.A. Milne's son was apparently a little shit. <laughs> My words, but apparently he was an awful, awful little brat. Um, but the books that came about that from the stories that he t told his son, based on his son's um, little collection of stuffed animals, mm. were incredibly popular. The illustrations are lovely and they're still charming now. And the stories still work now, I think. And what the stories are very much about is acceptance and friendship and you know they there's some quite gritty themes in that i know that's a weird thing to say about winnie the pooh as in the books anyway but but they really are i mean there's this whole part where um there's a great flood and owls well <laughs> owl who spells his name wall which is why i always call them walls ever since i was a kid <laughs> so sad um his tree gets knocked down so he hasn't got a home so he goes looking for a new home and being owl and incredibly wise and intelligent etc uh, he finds the right place and never asks if anyone else lives there 
And of course he goes in and says, well, this is my new home. And Piglet's like, but, but that home was mine. But he doesn't feel he can say anything. Mm. And Piglet's sort of like, I can find somewhere else to live. And Winnie the Pooh's like, you're going to live with me. It's fine. You know? <laughs> because even though Winnie the Pooh himself is kind of not terribly intelligent, a bit on the gluttonous side, yeah. he's totally accepting of all his friends and all his friends' foibles and things. And, you know, Piglet would be an exhausting person to be around because he's so anxious and, and jittery and worried about all the bigger animals all the time. And, yeah. and yet Winnie the Pooh is kind of like, yeah, come live with me. I, I'm not explaining this very well, but there's a very particular place in my heart for Winnie the Pooh based on based on these stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do know that, yeah, everything was a little bit complicated in terms of the relationship uh, between the author and his son, who I don't think particularly appreciated kind of he felt like i think he, he was being used but that's a whole other issue but yeah i think when he was older it was kind of like you plagiarized my childhood and um yeah. initially i think it started off innocently put it that way yeah um but it's it's interesting i think as well because you, as you touched upon um you you know the war had just finished um it was a shocking a shocking event because conflict you know people hadn't seen conflict like that for a very long time in England you know um, it, it completely changed what warfare looked like and um, so yes there was this whole well childhood as you know children are kind of precious in this moment but I think also there was for adults too there was this desire for something beautiful yeah. For something which was kind and generous and gentle, um, but wasn't kind of I don't I think the other thing about Winnie the Pooh is that there's no point where it's condescending, really. No. Um and so it was something which could be enjoyed by everybody. And you can kind of understand that because I think that, you know, even adults now can find comfort in a in a stuffed toy even adults now can you know will have i'm i'm not ashamed to say it. i have i have teddy bears i have i have like my childhood toys and stuff like that if i'm feeling sad i will actually still reach for them you know i will still give them a hug it will make me feel better uh, that's just a fact of life and i just don't think that really it's something that that gets lost um, you know, when you kind of reach a certain age, yes, you probably don't play with toys in the same way. You you know, you don't need them in the same way, but they can still offer comfort. And really, particularly when it comes to war and stuff like that, when you are run ragged, you know, how many times when you're in fear of your life and stuff like that, do we hear stories of people calling for their mothers? You know, reverting yeah. to that, I want to be safe. I want to have that that sense of I really can't be hurt if my mother's there. That comfort sort of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, all right. So uh, next on the list, we obviously have Noddy, um, Enid Blyton, uh, 1949. Um, oh, Noddy. <laughs> Noddy has... 
its own particular charm, I think. Uh, Noddy's a mixture of Toyland and Fairyland, because let's remember that Big Ears was a gnome. Yeah. Um, and he was Noddy's best friend, and Noddy used to just... I love how Noddy sort of rocks up in... As I recall, Noddy's origin story was he was an unwanted toy. Mm. Um, he was slightly defective. The child sort of went, oh, I don't like that, having received him as a present, and sort of cast him aside. And Noddy found his, sort of said, well, if I'm not wanted, I'll go elsewhere. He managed to find his way into Toyland, mm. where he immediately hit upon the fact that what the toys most needed, if Noddy wanted to earn his way around, <laughs> earn his keep, mm. was a taxi driver to drive him around. Yeah. <laughs> he'd, he'd made friends with the with the elf or gnome or whatever big ears on the way and um, managed to acquire a, ye- a red and yellow car and that's what he did he was he was toyland's taxi driver <laughs> which all sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud but i have to say there's stuff in the original noddy books and i read the original noddy books because they got handed down to me by my mother who had them read to her by my grandmother <laughs> And yes, they are still charming, but you look at them now and you think, oh, some of the stuff's there is not great. Mm. And it was more a case of it's a product of its time. It's like if you look at the Noddy cartoons and things now, they've really been cleaned up and they were cleaned up again at the beginning of the 80s. They were cleaned up again at the beginning of the 90s. There's been, we're on something like the fourth or fifth iteration now, but there's enough there that people keep wanting to go back and, and you know, redo it, as it were. Um, I have to say, Enid Blyton did write lots and lots of other stories about toys coming to life. I mean, her little collections of short stories that I used to read as a small child. Yeah. Uh, almost all of them had two or three, almost all of those books had two or three stories in there um, featuring toys coming to life yeah. of, of some kind or another. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it with, with she she was talking about the toys you typically find in a toy box, and a lot of the time she was talking about the toys you'd find in a toy box in her childhood, which would have been twenty plus years before. Yeah, um, which included things like gollywogs. <laughs> and, and I have to say, until I was in my sort of oh. mid to late teens, I never looked at a gollywog at the actual toy, which yeah. I, I think I saw one in a museum because they weren't in fashion when I was a child. Yeah, for strange reason. I didn't know. Nobody had explained to me that they were supposed to represent, you know, um, you know, it was coming off the back of some very unfortunate racial and ethnicity issues. Because to me, they didn't look like people. So why would I have ever made that connection? Yeah. I thought they were just strange, strange little toys. But if you think about it, there are all sorts of strange little toys as well. I mean, you also had dragons that didn't look like dragons, and um, and also dolls and sheep stuff like and... that who just didn't, you know. You wouldn't make the connection initially. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and things like uh, the other staples of the toys, things like the clockwork mouse. Yeah. I don't know anybody who ever had a clockwork mouse, obviously, because I didn't grow up in the 1930s, but apparently that was quite a big thing. It was the it was the Buzz Lightyear of its time. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, Noddy's got a lot to recommend it, even still. even I mean, it's been... It's been cleaned up a lot and, you know, it's pretty safe to give. I think they got rid of things like um, lots of kids in at that time when Noddy was originally written had Skittle sets mm. and they would be, um, you know, the, the Skittles would be knocked down with a ball and they felt that was too violent for children, so they got rid of that. 
Um, there's also one noddy book, I have to say, and it, it's this noddy book that makes me think that Ina Blyton probably didn't even make the connection between golly rogs and some unfortunate post-slavery type stuff. Yeah. Um, where the policeman's actually knocking the golly wog around with his truncheon because the golly wog's done something naughty. Oh, God. And it's like, oh, that's awful. And But also, it's like... I didn't make that connection as a child. I genuinely don't think she made that connection when she wrote it. But yeah, absolutely, that that deserved to come out of there. That's not something you want to keep pushing out no, into the world. Absolutely. Um, I, ugh, okay. Oh but dear, leaving, Enid <laughs> I mean, looking back now, a lot of the Enid Blyton stuff I read, I don't think it did me any harm, but I wouldn't necessarily go, yes, she's my top choice for a childhood author now, not mm. these days. I think she's become a bit dated, understandably, since she was writing... Well, it you know, around eight, it, we're coming up to a lot of what she was writing was about sort of 70 to 80 years ago. So, yeah. um, so weirdly enough, it is about a bit outdated and uh, there are lots of, you know, it's <laughs> racial and um, uh, prejudiced Sexism sort of things, all sorts of which stuff in there. even unconsciously um, might have sort of might have unconsciously slipped in there, if not consciously. Okay, um, so let's actually jump forward a little bit then to Super Ted um, in 1982. <laughs> this is very much my childhood, yeah. obviously. Um, Super Ted. Super Ted's origin story. Super Ted was a rejected teddy bear. He was being made at a toy factory and he failed the quality control test. Oh. So this big metal claw came down, plucked him out and threw him into a bin where he was going to be thrown away. Um, but a flying saucer happened to be passing by with a friendly spaceman inside called Spotty. He's a long yellow man with bright pink or purple spots, I believe. Uh, yep. He looked through the window and thought, I don't think we should throw that teddy bear away. I thought they were green. So, they might have been green. Maybe it they depended on what anyway. when it aired or what the, what the addition was. <laughs> anyway, he was yellow with spots. Yep. <laughs> and he came in and he did something Super Ted to bring him to life and imbued him with special powers as well. So every so often the teddy bear could turn into Super Ted by unzipping his front and there's this red all-in-onesie type suit with a cape underneath. <laughs> and then they go off on adventures together and Super Ted is kind of in charge even though Spotty was kind of like, yes, I'm going to bring this teddy bear to life. <laughs> and imbue it with more powers than I have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is this is very typical of an 80s type kids show. Mm. Um, understandably, this is 1982. Uh and it aired all the way up into the 90s. And you can probably still pick up reruns of it now, I think. I don't think they're making new ones, but you can easily find it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. There's all sorts of 80s kid shows on YouTube and they're an absolute screen. You should find some of them. Um, yeah. But it's typical in the sense of we've gone from here is a comforting childhood type story to here is a comforting childhood type story where even if you don't really fit the mould, you can be something special, you can be powerful, you can go off and help other people, which was very much a message that was pushed out through children's literature and um, shows and films and things at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're now going to jump to 1995, and 1995 just seems to have been a hit for uh, kids' movies and stuff like that about sentient toys, okay? Um, we have three examples all released in the same year <laughs> yep. and there are probably more so uh, the first and we'll talk about it more in, in a little bit because it is the, the one that's going to be best known is Toy Story 
the first Toy Story. Um, but then there are a couple of others which might be less well known. Um, two other movies. Uh, one is The Indian in the Cupboard, which is based on uh, an older book. And the second one, I can't remember the author, I'm afraid, I'm sorry. Uh, the second one is a film that I remember distinctly and still think about every now and again called The Forgotten Toys. Um, and oh, was, I think... Yeah, again, based on I, a book, I think, maybe? Yeah, I, rem I vaguely remember the book. I don't think I read it, but I think I might have seen the film. Although I have to say, in 1995, I was 16, so I was probably seeing less of the real children's films. Yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, it was a 25-minute film. Um, it's a cartoon, and I just want to talk about it first, then I'm going to talk about The Indian in the Cupboard very briefly, and then we can talk about to Toy Story. But The Forgotten Toys I had such a massive impact on me. I was incredibly young when I saw it. And the, basically, the story follows this teddy bear who kind of sits up, and he's sitting in a, in a rubbish bin, um, a trash can outside on the street in the snow and uh, he's shouting basically at, at a kind of like at the house you know saying you know come and come and pick me up he he you know he rants he he raves he 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 holds his breath he threatens to hold his breath until they come and pick him up before kind of having to accept that he's actually been sort of thrown away and in the neighbor's bin um is this this uh uh, Raggedy Ann doll as well who has also been thrown away and both of them are kind of a little bit they've, they've kind of got some sort of stitches and stuff like that you know missing or things like that or an eye or something along those lines and they kind of go on this journey to find some place sort of new um, and it was a really touching film and I remember how much it impacted me because it was one of the first times that I saw something that made me actually really think about waste and yeah. about also the idea of, of of value of something, how for one person, well, actually, I don't need this toy anymore, but for someone else, you know, that could actually be something incredibly important. And it really imparted to me as well this idea of I've got to be treat kind of my toys with care because they have, because, you know, they have feelings. Again, remember, I was incredibly young at this time. Yeah, <laughs> very, very young. Um, so, yeah, I was you know, sixteen. Madeline was about four or five. I, mean, I was three. I was three. You were three. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So, um, I was. Uh, yeah. It really, really impacted me, and I still think about it. Like, it had such an impact on me that I remember many, many years later. Actually, while I was at university, I was walking home one day, and I saw this tiny little teddy bear had been thrown away in the bin, right? Um, sort of in the outside bins. And I couldn't walk away from it. So I picked it out and I kind of, there was a sort of like a bit of cardboard nearby. So I I wrote out this message saying, um, please don't throw me away. Um, didn't you love me once? Or something like that. And put the teddy bear there holding this little sign. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And when, when I walked back, it was gone. <laughs> I was like, yeah, someone went, oh no. <laughs> um, and yeah, um, and it was because of this, the forgotten toys. Um, 
which was such an impactful move, uh, movie for me, despite the fact it was so short. I can still remember it to this day, many, many years later. Um, the second is The Indian in the Cupboard. Again, this is based on a an older book, um, author of whom I just can't remember at the moment. I remember the film, um, and one thing that I particularly liked about the film was that they actually used toys and stuff like that to, and this was an example of using toys in order to explore social and, you know, to create a social commentary. And in particular, to create a social commentary about the genocide of the Native American people um, by invading sort of uh, Westerners, essentially. Um, and particularly kind of how cowboys um, were sort of, ha have been venerated um, and how uh, you've got the Native Americans, um, or the, in inverted commas, the Red Indian, Red Indians at the time, uh, have were kind of villainized. And the film was actually incredibly well done because, first of all, they did actually cast Native Amer Native American actors in the part, um, but they also had actually proper um, sort of advisors and stuff like that. Um, and the, the premise of the story is that essentially this young boy gets given this cupboard and he then gets given this tiny little um, toy sort of, I, I, I'm going to say a toy Indian, that's how it's described, so it's this little toy Indian. Um, and he discovers that when he puts toys in the cupboard and then he opens it next, they come to life. But then if he closes them into the cupboard again, the next time he opens it, they will have reverted to being toys. Um, and it was, it, it's such a strange idea, but it, it, for me, from what I can remember of it, it, it was actually really informative whilst also being palatable for a child. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say that's one that kind of, I sort of understood the basic premise of the story, but I never, um, that's not one I ever read and I never actually caught the film. So I sort of knew, knew about it and knew it was one of those children's classics, but I'd never yeah to be honest it has been i i'm only talking about it briefly because it has been so long since i've seen it that i i can't talk about it in more detail and probably someone will have, will be listening to this and saying yeah but what about that whole section like i'm sorry i can't remember it that much but i remember the impact it had when i did watch it years ago and it was again the first time that i was sort of kind of started to understand things in terms of American history, um, which again I didn't have a lot of experience with because a I, I wasn't American and b I didn't live in America at the t <laughs> at any point <laughs> in my life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, Toy Story. Toy Story. Toy Story is kind of the gold standard for this trope, really. Um, if you haven't seen the film, obviously we're not going to recap the entire thing, but it is. It's basically this set of toys who are anthropomorphic when the child is not in the room or when the humans are not in the room. And it's it's literally about their lives and their lives are kind of turned upside down when the new It toy, i.e. the Buzz Lightyear, and by the way, the actual Buzz Lightyear toy caused an absolute um, riot when it was released that year as well. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone wanted it, as in people were literally fighting in shopping 
in shopping centres over these toys. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do this every year. Um, toy, st- uh, toy producers will release a certain number of toys and get the hype up. And if they do it right, then there's not enough to go around. And then sales are really bump the following year. But obviously parents want to buy things for their kids for Christmas. And, it, you know, they just... They go into full-on hunter-gatherer mentality, I think, whereby they absolutely have to have that particular bison. Yep. <laughs> um, that, that's what happened. But, you know, this new It toy, Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond, etc., um, doesn't know that he's a toy. Yeah. So really, the whole premise of the first Toy Story film is looking at identity and also belonging as well. Uh, because before Buzz Lightyear turned up, the coolest toy was Woody, who's actually an old family toy who'd been handed down from mother to son, etc. Yeah. Um, and he's probably a little bit old and dated now because his shows, what was his show in black and white, as we find out in less, in older in older than the following films, and he is really jealous of Buzz Lightyear. He is not happy with this new toy turning up. Yeah. And he spends a good proportion of the film trying to convince Buzz that, you know, you're just a toy. You're not the literal Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. <laughs> and h- hilarity in- ensues, um, including at one point almost losing Buzz completely and knowing that it's going to break his child, Andy's heart, because, you know, the whole point of the, t- the toys is they they kind of exist to make children happy. They have their own internal lives and everything and they're not anthropomorphised or sentient when the child's in the room, as in they don't move around or anything. Yeah. But at the same time, they're all conscious of this deep sense of purpose that they need a, ch- a child to play with them in order to feel complete. Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably one of the... Obviously, because there's been several Toy Story movies... This was, yeah, this... you know, this was the first one. And I think the reason that actually the rest of the films have been so successful following on from that is that they have maintained the heart of, of actually saying, we're going to use this to really look at the importance of toys um, for children. And actually what that says and, and how that works in terms of humanity. Yeah. You know? Um so toys they... as a form of developing empathy, toys for, you know, these wonderful adventures toys and children have together through the realms of imagination, etc. Yeah, but also growing up. Yeah, and certainly some of the later films where, you know, the boy Andy, you know, he's kept all his favourite toys, but the toys are kind of like, well, he doesn't play with us anymore. Well, no, he doesn't. He's gone off to college. He's kind yeah. of too old for you now. And it's really sad. It's that sense of being left behind which i think probably resonates a lot more with parents and grandparents than it does with children yeah and i think also it's quite interesting because the whole thing was that andy was keeping these toys because he actually still loved them yeah but he wasn't uh, but for them of course he wasn't playing with them therefore that meant that he didn't love them that's how they felt yeah and i think again that is something that a lot of children will also feel um, you know about relationships with sort of parents or things like that particularly children who suddenly are going well there's a whole other sibling now and they're getting a lot more attention which you kind of get a little bit in in the first film as well 
Um, and it's dealing with all of these complicated emotions. And there's, I think, a reason that Toy Story, the more recent ones, were so successful. And it was because there was obviously a whole generation of kids who had grown up with Toy Story from the start. Yeah. And it was appealing to them as well, because it was also about saying, we understand the complicated feelings you are going through as you are now leaving parts of your childhood behind. Um, and also that comfort of those parts of your childhood are not forgotten, they're not gone. They're just, you're, you know, they're just something that's part of you, but isn't the whole of you anymore, you know? Yeah, absolutely. In, and to a, a certain extent, yes, you do still need these things, but you don't need them as intensely as you did when you were a child because you've changed. And it is accepting that change, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's jump forward uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, by about 10 years or so uh, to the Lego movie. Yes, 2014. Yeah. When the Lego movie came out. This is... I can't believe well, it was 2014. <laughs> it feels so strange to me. <laughs> um, this is a great film with a really annoying, catchy song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's really... I mean, it's odd because, yes, it's it's all done sort of so that it looks like Lego. And I think everybody at some point has played with Lego. It's one of those you kind of just do as a child. Yeah. Um, but it's it's got some great messages to it as well. It's, again... The toys are essentially adults, but they're, they're toys, they're Lego. And it looks at some quite adult type stuff, but it also really looks at the child parent divide. I mean, you've got a parent there who is, who's got all this Lego and is not using it to play with and to really go for the feats of imagination. This is kind of like a, a modeler's type hobby for him. Yeah. Of course, his kid wants to go in and play with his Lego. You would, if you had that fantastic Lego set and you were a seven-year-old kid, it'd be almost impossible to keep you out of there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And what's interesting is I've I, I've seen a lot of people be like, no, the kid is in the wrong. That adult is just as you know. People are like, if I had spent that much time creating a you know a set, that was his. It's all his. And I'm like, the point isn't actually really at the heart of the story that it's about. Um, you know, the the father kind of locking out the kid from playing with with Lego, uh, because I think Lego is actually for all of the ages. Yes, it is. It, it's very appropriate for kids, but you know, it is a good modelling um, tool. Um, yeah. It was about the fact that the father was locking out the child from him. The kid wanted to play with his father. Yeah, and the whole thing with him only making what it says on the lego set and not ascribe it i mean the child approaches it from a, a creative standpoint where the father's kind of like following the instructions yeah. neither of those two approaches are wrong and they don't necessarily have to exclude each other um and that's mirrored by the the lego the actual story within the actual lego story itself where you've got this you know <laughs> you've got your main little lego guy who's kind of like the absolute average joe and the whole thing with the Lego people is that if you come up with amazing creative uses for Lego, then you're kind of hot shit. Where yeah. he, whereas the things he comes up with are kind of like, on the surface, they look really useless. They're like, it's like the bunk bed couch. Yeah. You know, like, 
why, why would you have that? Because their feet would be dangling. And then it turns out to be really useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's also kind of... Uh, the other thing that they used it for is that they used it to explore the whole Chosen One trope, which we've talked about in the past. But yeah. that is, again, very interesting as, you know, when it's combined with the fact that it's a toy, but also it's a toy which is used... For by individuals to express themselves and the yeah. whole kind of thing is that anyone can be the chosen one and that means that it's this kind of like with the right tools any kid can be the chosen one as it were um yeah. they just need to have the chance to do it and the whole thing with the father you know being so rigid only doing things by the code there's a kind of a sense that the kid feels stifled and is also then not able to connect with with their father and yeah i i thought it, it worked very very well because there was that whole meta you know meta element whereby at the end of the story uh you know you've got all these living lego characters and then it's just actually like well no we we're accepting that this is kind of a game that there is someone who's moving all of these pieces um and what is he saying with these pieces he is is he he's saying the fact that at the moment his father feels like a bad guy um because his father yeah. is trying to stifle that um yeah but he's there anyway and the reason he's there is because he wants that connection with his father you know um which he's not getting and at the end he does get it I just thought it was actually quite considering that you sort of look at it and go this is a silly film it's actually got an incredible amount of depth to it it really has it definitely has okay our final example i mean we've leapfrogged through the decades here and yeah. you can find examples pretty much for every decade and almost probably for every year um, and we've got a few others which we're going to talk about in a different context um the final one is a film i watched in 2021 which is released in 2021 it was a netflix movie and it's called the mitchells versus the machines i'm cheating a tiny bit here because this is less about sentient toys but it does kind of tap into that trope mm. the mitchells versus the machines is a commentary on how much we rely on smart devices yeah um and but in the world of this particular film everything has the smart chip applied to it a very specific smart chip something goes wrong and lends them all sentience and it, it starts it's about to start off basically the machine apocalypse yeah. which sounds awful but it's less terminator more like oh my god what if all the furbies turned into like absolutely rapid killers kind of thing <laughs> which still sounds terrifying but it was very very funny and it was a really interesting commentary on you shouldn't be uh abdicating responsibility for the things you make but you also shouldn't be you know letting something else do all the creative stuff for you you should keep some of that in-house as an in your own head mm. you don't necessarily need a smart chip applied to your toys and things because the point with a toy is that it's an aid to imagination as we we've said previously mm-hmm so it was a really interesting look at that and, and also sort of like pay attention to your family and the people around you. Don't just be looking at your phone the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> which is always a good, uh, always a good message. So it was a very funny film and it did have a little of this trope in it as well. Okay, so 
we're going to finish off with me just quickly taking you on a whistle-stop tour through a few of the darker themes explored by this trope in other circumstances. And now for the horror. <laughs> yeah, um, we're going to leave aside the outright horror um, yeah. of films such as Child's Play and Annabelle, which tap into the trope and twist it in a demonic direction. Yeah. Um, because the trope itself can also stand in is as a reference, as we've already talked about, for not belonging, not being considered real. Mm-hmm. which is a really powerful one. You're not considered real by somebody else and your feelings are not ascribed value. That's a that's something that children do have to deal with. Yeah. And an easier way of exploring that is, again, through the anthropomorphic toys or anthropomorphic animals. Mm. Um, also being cast aside or rejected, again, something children have to deal with. Finding your own purpose and even acknowledging the, the necessity of death. So some of these are a bit darker. Um there's also a whimsy and an, and an unsettling sense to these stories as well, in my opinion. Mm. Or at least I found them unsettling. Um, so while you might, as a child, think it's magical to have your sto- your toys come alive, and I'm sure most of us at some point have gone, I'm going to stay awake tonight and watch my toys come to life and play when they think I'm not looking. Yeah. Um, as an adult, as you get older, that should also strike you as incredibly sinister because <laughs> something something like that with its own agency and own agenda, you can't assume it's on your side. Well, like, okay, so you know the whole elf on the shelf thing? Yeah, they're written, no, I'm not doing that. They're horrifying! I just, they are horrifying. I don't get it, like, and people are like, oh yeah, and I'm like, no, that's a thing of nightmares! <laughs> The thing is, want it. it's it's not even adult Jules looking at it and going, that's a weird sort of fascist 1984 thing to do. Um, it's child Jules is looking at it in horror and going, I don't want someone moving a fucking doll around the house and telling me that it's doing it by itself. No, thank you. <laughs> I would never have slept, ever. And not in a, I want to catch the elf thing, in a, oh my God, I don't think I'm safe in my bed kind of yeah. way. Okay, um, so not so much a scary story, but kind of sad and a bit wistful. The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams, which was published in 1921. Mm. There are many, many beautiful editions of this book. The originals had these gorgeous illustrations, and you can still, I think, get uh, copies of the original, obviously as reprints. Um, it was made into a film, which is a strange, wistful, sad sort of film. Uh, basically... A boy on his birthday is given many, many beautiful toys, including a red car, and which becomes his favourite toy for a little while, and a little velveteen rabbit, which is small and unassuming, and is kind of kind to the other toys. And the other toys explain that, you know, there's no point getting attached to the boy because he's never going to love them back the way that they would love him. Hmm. Um, That's me paraphrasing it, really. But the velveteen rabbit is kind of, again, quiet and unassuming, and... um, kind of gets his big break when the boy loses the teddy bear he normally takes to bed so his mother brings him the velveteen rabbit instead and he accepts the substitute and after that he cannot be parted from the rabbit and he hugs the rabbit at night and the rabbit sort of cuddled into him and thinks that there's nobody else he loves more in the world than this boy and it's all very very sweet right up until the boy gets scarlet fever and at the time they didn't have antibiotics yeah and they didn't have a lot of there's a point where it looks like the boy is going to die um i think if i've got it right i might be wrong on this but i think the velveteen rabbit is desperately wishing for the boy to live even at the expense of his own life 
Mm. Um, at which point the parents come in and they gather up all the boys' toys because he's in a coma and they've they've got to remove any source of contagion, which means anything he's played with, and they're being consigned to a bonfire in the garden. And it's it's really awful. It's kind of like full on toy massacre. <laughs> Um, and the Velveteen Rabbit's kind of like, well, if it means that he'll get well, it's kind of worth it. Um, and it's really sad and awful because the the Velveteen Rabbit never stops loving this this boy. Um, anyway, there's a strange change of fortune and the Velveteen Rabbit gets left under a hedge or something rather than consigned to the bonfire. And it looks like he's just going to end up withering away in the garden. And I, some sort of supernatural being comes along and says, you've loved that boy so long and so faithfully that you deserve to be real and turns the Velveteen Rabbit into a real rabbit. And the rabbit just sort of lives around the garden and it sort of lives with its own kind. And then he's still hoping for a glimpse of the boy that he's actually all right, that he might have survived the scarlet fever because he doesn't know. Mm. And the following summer, the boy's um, in the garden playing and the velveteen rabbit sees him, except he's a real rabbit now. And the boy sees the real rabbit and they sort of look at each other. And the rabbit hops up to him and the boy hugs him like he used to hug his velveteen rabbit. And the rabbit sort of hugs him back. And then because he's a rabbit now and he's a wild rabbit, he then hops away. And it's kind of like a big goodbye, as in we don't really belong together anymore. So it's very bittersweet. Um, but it's a really interesting look at, you know, sometimes you're, uh, it's a really interesting look at sort of the complexities of love, if that makes sense, which I thought was quite a heavy hitting for a children's book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, actually, it, it it's a kind of a story which, um, we've said in the past that a lot of children's books, particularly middle grade and stuff like that, start to talk about things like death. Yeah. And this is a great example where you can actually explore the ideas of mortality and death and and the fact that you will lose things because usually around that age that is when kids start to actually lose things for the first time so they will lose people but they will also lose family pets and things like that which is very difficult for a young kid to understand so using kind of toys to sort of explain that I think actually is another way that that we're able to to discuss it yeah yeah absolutely so um yeah so that one very sad but um and also it's always had that sort of again that slightly wistful whimsy slightly creepy feeling to it Mm. yeah maybe just just the subject matter okay The next one, which is one that it sort of haunted me a little bit. And it's The Mouse and His Child by Russell Hoban, which was published in 1967. And this is basically about, uh, basically it's about a clockwork mouse. Um, But it's a sort of anthropomorphized mouse that stood up on its hind legs wearing trousers and a shirt and what have you. Mm -hmm. And he's holding on to a little child mouse. So they're like like they're doing ring a ring of roses. So they're holding on to each other like that. And when you wind them up, they sort of like the the, the father mouse lifts the child mouse into the air and down. You know, so you've got this basic clockwork type thing. Yeah. Um, and as I recall, what happens is eventually um, the child stops playing with the the mouse and his child, and then the the toy gets discarded, and they go on this 
weird sort of adventure to try and find somebody that a will separate them so they can be individual beings because they're literally they're tin and they're joined together and c and sorry a to whatever to separate themselves so they could be two individual beings um and b to sort of be self-winding because if they if they're not wound up they can't move mm. so they have to find people along the way to wind the clockwork again and it's it's a really strange story and again it has that sort of creepy whimsy about it whereby this isn't really a story for children this is a story for children to read and not fully understand and just lurk at the back of their heads and say this is what a quest for individuality and identity is about yeah um to a certain i mean i don't think he russell hoban would have phrased it quite like that but just kind of like yeah there comes a point when you need to be able to part from your parent and it doesn't mean you don't love them anymore. It just means that you need to be alone. You need to be an individual. Um, you need to have your own sense of agency. So the whole self-winding thing. And there's lots of creepy adventures along the way. It's a it's a really, really good book. And it is acknowledged as a classic. And there's a very sinister animated 80s film of it. Because that's what <laughs> they did in the 80s. They made sinister animated films. <laughs> I've never heard of it, but now I'm really curious. Yeah, there's something... I should read it again, really, because I think it's it's one of those... It's never stopped entirely playing on my mind when I'm like, oh, yeah, children's stories. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> it, it is strange how, yeah, you, you, like, you don't realise, actually, how often things from childhood will have an impact or how much of an impact it's had until you actually really stop and think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, the next one I have actually talked about, and again, I'm cheating a little bit because the focus of the story is not the toys, um, but that's Velveteen versus the Junior Super Patriots by Shauna Maguire, which was basically written on Live Journal as an open-ended series of adventures starting mm-hmm. in 2008. And it's about a bunch of young superheroes who are kind of marketed um, via a company a bit like Disney kind of thing. Right. Um, so it, it follows all the horrible stuff around child fame, etc. Yeah. But Velveteen's power, and the reason her costume is basically, she's basically dressed as a bunny girl, is that she can make anything that is a sort of anthropomorphized type toy mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, she can make it live for a short while. So she can command armies of teddy bears and things, which sounds really naff. Until you're actually attacked actually, by an army of teddy bears. That's terrifying, actually. <laughs> or you know, you know the the hamburger statue standing outside McDonald's. She can bring it to life and send it against people. <laughs> that's horrifying. Yeah, it is really horrifying. I'm just mentioning it because I thought that was a really interesting use of the sentient toy trope, as well as being a genuinely quite terrifying one. That is, yeah, that's definitely an interesting way of doing it um it's definitely a form of sentience (laughs) even if it Um, isn't only temporary yeah okay the most sinister version of this trope without going into outright horror is again by shauna mcguire and despite the title has nothing to do with the stories i just mentioned um this is a short story called we are all misfit toys in the aftermath of the velveteen war and you can find it in the book Laughter at the Academy, which is an anthology of Sean Maguire's short stories. And 
it's a really compelling short story, but it's really fucking creepy. <laughs> Basically, what happens in this story is at a certain point, um, somebody came up with the idea of fully interactive dolls that would help children who are on the autistic spectrum. Um, oh. Unfortunately, it came from the perspective of let's make them more normal by giving them these toys that will give them the attention and basically kind of the training that parents don't really have the time to provide, except that the chips in the dolls kind of adapt, the dolls then become sentient, and the dolls really hate it when the children then grow up and try to be adults, because then they're not necessary anymore. So what these dolls do is they sort of, they, they form this um, uprising where they kidnap the children that they were kind of babysitting slash training slash being companions to, and they take really drastic measures to stop them becoming adults. Mm. And I'm not going to go into details as to what happens with with that, but trust me, it's it's pretty grim. <laughs> That's it, terrifying. It's, yeah, it is absolutely terrifying. Again, a really compelling story and a really interesting look at, you know, when you have a child, just because the child may not be perfect in the way you want, you don't get to abdicate responsibility for that. Whether that means finding somebody, another person, an actual human, who is able to provide the care that you're not able to provide that child, or whether that means changing your perspective on things so that you actually provide the care for that child. You can't just farm it out to um, basically an AI device and a doll or anything else. You can't have a digital nanny on this one. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, again, it's also a very, very important kind of message in general to... You can say, oh, well, you know, I don't have those kinds of things now. But actually, people do it all the time now where they will let... Essentially, because they're not engaging with their kids... um, the internet is kind of raising them instead. TikTok is raising yeah. them, you know, and that's very, very dangerous because you have these kids who don't have feel like they actually have a, a safe place at home to turn to when it comes to certain things. Um, not necessarily because you've got a bad relationship, but because they think that, oh, I can't talk to my parents about my sexuality or I can't talk to them about sex or I can't talk about to them about, you know, pretty much anything. Um, and so they will go to sort of strangers on the internet instead or be, you know, kind of uh, affected by just things that they've seen and that's dangerous to a certain degree because it is so generalised um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have it, it, this information is not kind of corrected according to context or anything like that, you know um, and we do do it and we've done it you know for a very very a long time and it's not just with the internet it's it's with sort of lots of sort of various things um so it's kind of interesting yeah to use toys in that way to sort of say okay but a toy can never be a substitute for a parent yeah and bear in mind that a digital nanny has its own agenda as well yeah so um yes very creepy and again we're not going to go into outright horror we are going to wrap up now because um we've overrun slightly but it was really a really interesting topic to discuss it is it is an interesting one um so i guess sort of what do you think is your favorite example of this trope 
Um, I'm going to be kind of quite sad and go back and say probably Winnie the Pooh. I realise it's not the most modern example, but I think because it was so... I've just... It, I've obviously got very fond memories of reading the book as a, a very young child, and it's one of the ones I can actually remember being read to me. Mm. Um, and I just... Uh, for a story that seems quite simplistic, it's actually utterly packed with philosophy as well. Yeah. So that one just really resonated for me. I mean, I do have like some wistful feelings for like the Velveteen Rabbit and the Mouse and His Child, but they also kind of disturbed me at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get exactly what you mean. I think for me, um, it will probably have to be probably Toy Story. Um, I never really got the chance to watch Winnie the Pooh growing up. Not gonna lie. So I was kind of introduced to it a little bit later, um, more as a, I want to have a look at this classic, you know, um, yeah. as an older sort of person. Um, but the whole concept of toys coming to life in a very sort of friendly way, um, I think that is probably my introduction to it. Um, and it's, so it's a very comforting side of things. Um, but the question then is, would we ever write it? Would I mean, would you ever use sort of living toys? Um, I think if I did, it would be, I'd end up going down the darker direction with it. Yeah. I've just got a feeling that that's, how, that, that's the way that <laughs> that would go surprise. down. What a surprise! It wouldn't necessarily even be deliberate. I think it's just a case of... I've, all this stuff with effigies and things is all tied up with sort of exploring the darker parts of human nature in my head. So I've got a feeling it would go in that direction. Um, I don't have a burning desire to go there yet, although there is a short story um, based between the end of the Unveiled series and the beginning of Harker and Blackthorn called Dollhouse that is an, an Amy and Fiona adventure, which does kind of tap into this trope a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm already scared. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what about you? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, probably because I, I'm more likely to lean towards actually just using animals instead. Um, yeah. But I think there's always the potential. Um, and it is such an interesting idea that, that yeah, maybe in the future. But uh, that remains to be seen. Anyway, um, it is time for us to go, uh, but before we do, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week, and um, I've actually got one. Well, Jules and I both have one, because um, yeah. we both <laughs> recently watched the, the series, the Netflix series Wednesday on Netflix. Yes, and um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I feel like Tim Burton really got to... First of all, he just... You can trust him with the Adams family, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you really can. He he gets the whole... He's representing representing goths um, since since the late... Since the early 80s kind of thing. And we, we bless you for it, Tim, you know? <laughs> yeah. I thought it was very good. It was really interesting. Beautifully shot. Um entertaining i just really enjoyed it um yeah. so highly recommended for a little bit of a spooky watch um and uh <laughs> yeah please do let us know what you think uh, also do let us know what your favorite examples of the toys coming to life trope is do you find it terrifying do you find it comforting do you have a childhood toy that you still hold on to now that 
you know, that you ascribe a great deal of love, you know, please do let us know. And uh, we will catch up with you guys next week for our Christmas episode. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.